Ledger is a writing podcast and a solar-powered lantern slowly losing light as the sun creeps closer and closer to the horizon. I'm Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. Today we talk to Brenda Tolian about her new novel, Blood Mountain, out from Raw Dog Screaming Press. One you should definitely check out if you like horror fiction. It's got some pretty amazing blurbs. Uh, Gabino Iglesias says that it's a bloody mosaic novel, brings together smart writing and pure horror with beautiful prose. Uh, it's also packed with blood. It centers on otherness, a strange literary creature that slides into your flesh. So that's pretty noteworthy. Uh, and then after that, horror superstar Josh Mollerman says, uh, along the face of Tolian's Mountain, real horrors exist besides sudden lavish declarations. Uh, he basically tells you exactly what I'm about to tell you, which is that it's great. You need, to, you need to check it out. Go to rawdogscreaming.com to pick up the book and make sure you swing by Brenda's website, which is brendatolian.com. We talk about the writing of the book. We talk about blood as a representation of life and death. What influences she brings to the book, um, whether she was haunted by Colorado before she arrived there, um, how she's going to continue writing about Colorado now, even though she no longer lives there. Just everything surrounding uh, the book coming together. Um, it's, it's a great conversation, and I'm really thankful that Brenda stopped by. Um, as always, go to my website, austinrwilson.com. You can listen to episodes of this show. You can also subscribe to this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, every place you download your podcast. Make sure you go subscribe, like the show, and yes, give it a rating and a review um, because it really helps, and I want as many people to hear these episodes as possible. I've got a lot of great interviews already stacked up that I've done and all coming forward. Uh, I have a lot in July and in August. Um, I've gotten a lot more people reaching out to me than I thought I would, and it's literally just me making the show. So thank you so much to everyone for the response. Uh, thank you for your understanding for my slow email responses, because I, I do have to balance this with all the other stuff that I do. Um, but I adore doing this. I, I love it. So I'm, I'm not going to stop. So uh, if I haven't responded to your email yet, please let, let understand. I'm sorry. I'm I'm working on getting to it. Um, as for now, this is my discussion with with Brenda Tolian. Like I said, go check out Blood Mountain. Give it a read uh, before or after you listen to this show. Um, but right now, here's the conversation. Actually, the one thing that I did want to say first is, so Blood Mountain is out now. Yeah. Um, and you lived in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Which is where the book is set. <laughs> exactly. And now you don't live in Colorado. Is that a coincidence or was that a like, <laughs> how, how did that, ha like, how did that converge with real life where it's like this book in Colorado? Now I'm, I'm gone. I'm leaving Colorado. Yeah. Um, well, I've been in Colorado for quite a while. Um, it was just time for a change. Um, you could say that I was trying to get away from the blood mountains. <laughs> right and um just um that section of my existence um so um i still have a great love for the valley and the mountains and um you know my friends and and my students that i've had to leave behind um but it was just time for a change um this isn't the first move in my life i've, I've lived in many other places so I seem to have like a eight to ten year limit <laughs> that I, oh yeah and then I move on um my love for the valley is still going strong though actually the next novel is still centered there so um so yeah so now I moved to New Orleans and um and I'm just kind of exploring I guess you could say Oh gosh, I was obsessed with New Orleans, and I'm sure you won't be surprised to know it was because of Anne Rice. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, her house isn't too far away from where I live. I haven't actually been over there yet, but um, but yeah, that would have been you know some of the earliest uh, dark fiction that um, that I consumed um, early on. So um, she's definitely she's on your mind. No matter where, you know, if, if, if you read the books and you walk around, um, you recognize um, the details and the setting that, you know, she rendered so beautifully and clearly that, you know, 
you almost feel like you've walked the same streets or something, you know. Isn't that so funny how that can work with, well, especially with New Orleans where it has a ton of history, a, a lot of really rich history. And yeah. when I think about New Orleans, I think of Van Rye. So obviously it's, you know, going to be different for a lot of people. But mm-hmm. um, do you think that's some, obviously not the same as Van Rye, but something like that is in your future with Colorado? Like, have you become a part of Colorado in a sense? Like your next novel set there? Mm-hmm. So how... How deeply is that place a part of you now? Um, due to my experiences there, um, it definitely, um, there, there shall be no exorcism of Colorado by any means. Yeah. Um, I will always kind of be haunted by um, the valley, its history, its people, Um and haunted, I don't mean necessarily even in a dark way. It's just, it's as old as people think of New Orleans as being. Um, the history in that valley, I would say, um, goes back further, you know. Yeah. And um, and it's, it's not unlike, now I'm in an urban environment there, it's um, very rural. But there are, there's this uh, meeting up of, of cultures, um, a history of conquest, um, you know, um, gold rush, silver rush, um, taking over a territory and taking it from the indigenous people, you know, that had called that valley sacred for so long. Um, it's impossible for that to be taken from my mind, you know, it's, um, and, and some of the themes I find when I look at even New Orleans, I see some uh, similar themes, you know, that maybe in the future I could write about. Um, but Colorado is definitely where I was like personally put to the flames, <laughs> so to speak, and um, was able honestly to walk out of there. Um, and I won't get into that too much, but, but it definitely influenced my experiences influenced so many things like how I've gone after education, um, strongly how I've, um, how I've, uh, written and chosen how to write, um, the narratives that I choose to tell. Um, and I'm very research based, um, as far as a writer. So, um, being able to study, um, you know, old newspapers and, and hear stories told from people I knew that their families have always lived in the Valley or have for many, many generations. Um, all of those things kind of go into influence, um, what I'm writing there. Um, so I don't know if I'll always stay in that, you know, like my mind stay in that area while I'm writing. But right now, um, it's still the story that I'm choosing to tell. Do you think you were haunted by Colorado before you went there? Was that a reason why you went there? Um, or no, how did that no. not necessarily, um, just ended up making a move there. Of course I went to school there at Adam state university and my twin daughters did as well. Um, Colorado, for me, um, was a special place to my grandparents. And so we, they went there every, like, August and stayed almost till Thanksgiving um, for many, many years. And um, so some of my um, best memories of just being with my grandparents, just me and them, and hiking and hearing my grandfather, you know, tell me different stories of different areas, um, definitely has stayed with me. Um, you know, I traveled through there a couple times back in the early nineties, um, when I was on a crazy road trip at the time. And, um, and I've always been very much into history. Um, it's funny that I didn't get my degree in that, but I guess my daughter is going (laughs) to do that for instead. Um, but the history is just, um, rich and and you can find a lot of odd odd 
historical tidbits, you know, to kind of inspire and direct writing. Um, Because, you know, where there are people going out to consume the land and take from others and um, pull silver and gold out of, you know, go into these very, um, you know, into the wilderness, um, you're going to find strange stories there always. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned research. That's actually, I had a question specifically about that. Um, I was doing research for the, for this interview. So I was looking up stuff related to your stories. And, uh, one of the things that I was looking up was about, I think it's pronounced Estsanalehi, mm-hmm. um, which is the, what the information I found uh, was, uh, that's uh, another name for the changing woman. Yeah. Um, exactly. which was super awesome. I have this b- uh, book called the Oxford companion to world mythology that I was, that mm-hmm. I was reading about. Um, and it talks about, uh, ch- the changing woman giving birth to two twins who are named monster slayer and born for water, which is really cool. Uh-huh. Um, but you said you're very based in research. Mm-hmm. So let's say for, for, for each short story, mm-hmm. um, is research where you start? Like what's the, I'm also super obsessed with like the very first thing that someone does when they, when they have, they already have their idea mm-hmm. is research. The very first thing that you jump into after you're like, okay, I want to write about, um, the gold rush. Yeah. Um, it depends on the story. Um, some of them, the writing starts and then the research comes kind of after, um, with, uh, S10 at the Luhi which is a really fun word to say. It is, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, that one came because it's impossible to write about the valley and just do it from um, through an Anglo-white voice. Right. Because um, the Anglo-white voices are not necessarily, they're kind of the latecomers, you know. Um, but uh, when I was writing that story, um, I wanted to honor in the best way I could, um, the indigenous, um, people, the Ute, um, the Navajo that, you know, hold the valley sacred and the mountains and Mount Blanca is sacred. Um, and then I was also thinking of like, um, this kind of, it's like Jake in that story is kind of like a good Samaritan or he thinks he is he thinks he's a good Samaritan kind of figure um but he's essentially stepping into realms and places that he doesn't belong and he's kind of looking at the changing woman which is a beautiful thing he's looking at it through this very ethnocentric um gaze where he's only seeing it through his perspective and it's, it's horrific. Whereas from the indigenous perspective, it is the, you know, the changing of the seasons, the changing of life. And, um, so I wanted to kind of contrast those two things, um, in the story. And so of course I had to go into, um, you know, the mythology, the old stories, um, which, you know, I asked different people about, I also did my own research and um, hopefully rendered it in a very respectful way. Um, but I did want to show it through that. Um, the intrusive Anglo gaze It's kind of like uh, old missionaries, you know, coming to save people, their souls. Um, of people that didn't need their souls saving. <laughs> you know, they didn't need to have uh, missionaries come in and change their... Because missionaries also were part of that big push for colonization and manifest destiny. Um, and that's just pushing that, that viewpoint. And a lot of times that leads to lands being stolen, um, enslavement, um, culture being erased, languages being lost. Um, so it was important to me to, um, also touch upon that in, in this book. Um, now there's other ones like Snake Man that I just read, uh, article that I thought was an absolute hoot. Um, it didn't even happen in the Valley. It was, it was, um, some man got arrested. I think it was like an Arkansas or something. And he had like a bottle of Jack Daniels and a whole bunch of rattlesnakes in the back of his car. <laughs> and I was just like, I mean, it just made me laugh. And I was like, you know, 
I could definitely change that up, you know, add, yeah. add some snake people and, you know, in this, in, in an area that's well known for UFO sightings and everything and just play right. with it that way. So, so a lot of times, um, it's just lifting it from newspapers to be honest, you know? Yeah. And then following that thread, you know, wherever that may lead. Do you think that is, um, specifically the, a person going somewhere where they shouldn't be in, in different forms? Is that a, like, as soon as you said that, I was like, Oh crap, I feel like that is a huge theme for this entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, I was thinking, um, a lot of times horror has its monsters, right? Right. But monsters often reflect what's going on in society at the time the monster is written, you know, and we see that with vampires changing through the times and everything, um, in stories. And, um, for me, um, man, man, mankind, humankind is often, um, is often the monster in the monster story, you know? Um, and so, um, yeah, that's a, that's definitely a theme that I was following in this book, um, was just, you know, who, who's the monster exactly, you know, who's showing the monstrous behavior, you know, who's doing the most harm. I, another thing I, I've sort of, well, I mean, the book's called Blood Mountain, so Mm -hmm. blood is right there in the title. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about as I was going through the stories and, and seeing blood show up in all of these different ways, um, how you are representing or you're having blood represent both life and death. Mm-hmm. And within horror specifically, blood is so often just another way to, to like showcase horror, like the mm-hmm. actual feeling. Um, but and, and particular in some of your stories, especially like Stone Mother, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're showcasing blood that is representing life. Yeah. Um, how early on in the process um, were you thinking about way? Like, is that something that just kind of came about um, naturally because you were writing about um, blood mountain, which I kind of want to get to some of the stuff that Mario Acevedo said in the intro about it being a character, but just the idea of blood representing death and life within horror. Mm-hmm. Um is that something that drove the stories or did it just happen kind of organically as they all started coming together? Um, I think it also mirrored um, some of my ideas about the feminine body, especially mm-hmm. how the feminine body is often represented in horror um, and what happens to the feminine body in horror, um, which is often written by men. And I'm certainly not going to say men can't write women, but, um, but um I'm hoping that we're starting to enter this renaissance of female writers um, and female identifying writers and that are going to put our unique perspective on what it means to be a female frightened or it put in any one of those situations. Um, and I think blood kind of reflects that. So um, there's this dynamic, this parallel between say the rivers and tributaries that run on the blood mountain right and the blood Mm -hmm. mountain i represent oftentimes in this um as a very female body but if if you notice that the the mountain is often mirroring what's going on to the female body within the work as well right um so um to talk about blood i you know um and part of that just might be some of my nerdiness going back to early English lit <laughs> classes, <laughs> you know, where, you know, you talk about the, the different humors as in, you know, yellow, green, all these kinds of things that Shakespeare used. Um, and then, and then look forward into how say Cormac McCarthy uses, um, um, blood and the natural environment in those kinds of ways. Um, I just have an interest in, I don't want to write something that just makes someone feel scared because I don't, there's a purpose for that entertainment wise. Um, But I really wanted something that really made people 
hopefully attach like you've done <laughs> to those deeper themes, you know, blood mountain. Well, blood is running on the mountain, but blood is like you said, it's, it's giving life. Even some of my characters that bleed, they don't necessarily die, you know? Yeah. So, and I, I think it's there. Yes. I think you, <laughs> you succeeded. Um, well, especially like I was thinking about it cause you know, I, had a, a specific upbringing. I'm from the Midwest. Mm. Um, and the ways that I was taught as a young person to see blood as bad mm -hmm. or as wrong or as gross yeah. and having to unlearn those things, um, the older I've gotten. And, um, I connected with a lot of the stuff in your stories specifically around birth and just the idea of blood being a part of our lives mm -hmm. and how it's, it's not, um, a gross thing. And I, I was, uh, uh, almost my, like early teens, 10 years old in the, in the nineties. And all of the stuff that I heard about blood back then was like, stay away from it. It's always bad. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's interesting the ways that my mind has changed and, and your books played a part in that, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about the ways that, um, we cast our own uh, or not even our own, but stuff that we've been taught um, onto what blood is and what it represents. Yeah. I mean, especially coming from like the female perspective, whether it's blood from birth or blood from, um, you know, that time of the month and um, you know, those kinds of things have been, um, you don't talk about that. You know, right. and I, it sounds like we had some, somewhat maybe the same upbringing. Um, yeah. You didn't talk about stuff like that. You didn't talk yep. about the changing of the body or what happens to the body, you know, and, um, and I think that definitely was because it's always been taught either you don't talk about it or somehow um, a woman is. Um, dirty or, you know, I mean, women are still in, in some parts of the world still made to section themselves off to, from society when it's, when it's, um, when it's time for their period, you know? Um, so that's not something that's still happening today, you know? And then all the talk um, around women's bodies of late, we don't have a lot of, um, autonomy over ourselves and we, we, we never really have, and we still don't. <laughs> and the little bit we have might be taken. So, um, I, did I have that in mind when I was writing, like say stone mother knew I had no, I, it blew my mind that, um, you know, when I started writing that there was no way, um, say Roe versus Wade would be overturned. And as a female myself and a mother of twin daughters, you know, I get to thinking about these things in the way that um, all of those topics are treated and how that influences how we move about in the world, you know, without agency. Right. Yeah, that was obviously that was on, at the forefront of my mind, too, as I was reading your stories, because they I was reading them after the the announcement that potentially Roe was going to be overturned and. Uh, so that played a part into how I read your stories and how they affected me. And um, that's the another like uh, one of the things Mario Acevedo mentions in the intro is that you are writing about these topics and our lives through the lens of horror and bringing so much more to the page, like having Stone Mother and um the story about the changing woman. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I'll butcher the name if I try to say it. Again. <laughs> um, those stories like hit on so many different levels mm -hmm. because of the things that are happening in the real world. Like you said, like you weren't writing them knowing those things were going to happen. Um, but they are kind of changed because of those things having happened. Yeah. It's kind of strange to think about. Well, when I was writing it, um, you know, I was looking at the valley. I walked the valley, you know, um, daily, hiked, you know. Um, and I was thinking about how much colonization, manifest destiny, 
changed the mountains, you know, is even today changing climate. You know, there's still fights over water and I, you know, fights from um, other states wanting to take the water that runs right down the middle of Colorado, you know, until the uh, Rio Grande has very little water, you know. Um, and our water tables and the San Luis lakes. Um, when I went there, the, um, when I first moved there, there was water in those lakes. Now there's nothing, but, you know. Um, and if it rains, there might be a little bit more, but it's not potable. You can't enjoy the water at all. Yeah. And stuff. And I was often, I, it, it was impossible for me to think about the valley and the mountains and the um, changing climate. Um, climate change is a big deal, um, definitely very evident there. And thinking about that in comparison, also, once again, to the female body, you know, um, I was just pulling so many parallels, you know, um, because the land doesn't get to say what it wants done to its, to its, um, body. Um, you know, so, um, so I was hitting on those themes really hard, um, without knowing, (laughs) Yeah. Without knowing that some of some of the stories were um, gonna unfortunately become more relevant, um, you know, and yeah, I I wish I couldn't say that, <laughs> you know, right. Right. I'd rather not yeah. be saying that because um, Stone Mother originally had actually been turned down for being too much, it was too much, and um, I doubt. I would would get that same kind of pushback right now, but I did a year ago, you know. So, how strange is that? How strange is the world? That's yeah, it's pretty strange. And I mean, that's a also a really good segue to the next question, <laughs> which is uh, in the intro, Mario Acevedo, who who taught you at the Regis Mile High MFA and Creative Writing Program. Mm-hmm. My mentor. Um, uh, he's talking about specifically how you didn't seem like you were a writer who were who was still figuring out the best way to express yourself and you didn't fear taking your prose too far mm-hmm. it, did you feel that way at the time um or do do you even feel that way now i don't no there's probably some who will read it and be like she wrote what you know <laughs> she did <laughs> right help, she did that to that character um i i don't feel like it um I guess I'm not apologetic um if it leaves readers thinking if they're contemplating beyond being entertained if they're thinking about um things that are happening in the world and maybe it makes them pushes them into some sort of action where they step up and and help somebody out or you know um connect to the earth in a helpful way um to me, it's, it's all rather worth it. Um, but I also read a lot of books that, um, push the envelope, you know, um, you know, um, Stephen Graham Jones and, and some of his earlier work, um, uh, Gambino Iglesias, um, Hillary Lefwich, um, I could just keep on naming off authors that, um, that push, you know, push beyond. And a a lot of times that space though, pushing beyond has been taken up by male authors. Um, and I think it's, you know, time. And I think we're seeing it, um, with Haley Piper and V Castro and, um, different writers. We're seeing female writers push the envelope and, um, as Stanley Riotter says, uh, look into the abyss, you know, um, and are, and are writing fiercely, courageously, um, no holds barred, um, that really sticks with a, with a reader, you know, um, my book is probably not for everyone. Um, some people have requested copies and when I sign it, I'm like, you can have this, but please don't read it. (laughs) Uh, you know uh, who have you who have you who have you said that to uh, please don't read this you're welcome yeah uh, a couple friends who are mormon uh, like mm, 
you can have a copy. Please don't read it. My grandma would rather her not read it. Um, my mom, my mom, I think my mom will still read it and she'll, she'll see what I was trying to do. Will she like all of it? I don't know. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, um, there, there's things in the book that definitely I push the envelope and I know I'm pushing the envelope and I know when I submitted my, you know, my edits and the raw manuscript, cause this was my master's thesis at Regis university. When I submitted that yeah. to, uh, Mario, he'd probably, he'd write on the side. He's like, you're scaring me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, if I scared you, then I'm, if I scared you, then it's done what it needs to do. Um, yeah, that's a high, that's high praise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I couldn't ask for a better mentor ever. Um, he really, um, I had other writers, um, as, as, uh, instructors and stuff there too, but he, I consistently worked with and, um, he was kind of like just, you know, um, a very wonderful guide. Um, you know, he would, definitely tell me when you need to get rid of this, the action starts here, you know, what are you doing here? This doesn't make sense, <laughs> you know, Yeah. and stuff. So he really took the story that I was going to tell and he helped me, um, learn the craft. Like he's an expert craftsman. So he, he really taught me a lot, you know, as, as far as storytelling goes. Do you think the, the concept of, too far is something that you the the royal you mm -hmm. like the individual is that something that the individual can can sort of decide or do does there always need to be someone else who's like helping you investigate whether it's a sensitivity reader or even just oh yeah someone else mm -hmm. being like i think this might be too far and because with horror i've talked about this in previous interviews mm -hmm. like finding that border of like where too far is mm -hmm. um, being a difficult process sometimes. Well, um, as far as sensitivity readers, I did have, um, I did have readers who um, were from um, the indigenous um, body read um, to make sure that I wasn't um, stepping where I shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I was telling the story correctly, you know. Um, so I definitely and I stress that. Um, I don't think I don't think you have to be necessarily restrained. There's stories certainly I don't need to be telling. But like I said, the valley, it's impossible to write about the valley and just write it from um a white perspective. In fact, right. I think that would just be kind of an affront to the valley in general. Um, right. But do you need people who understand what's going into it? Um, yes. You know, um, there was a section where I actually had a character kind of cowering, and um, my reader, that is um, Apache, was like, ah. No Navajo woman I know would just take a punch. <laughs> you need to, you need to have her launch herself, um, you know, at her husband if he's going to be doing that and stuff. So, um, so I listen to those voices and I make the changes as needed. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, having someone who has been a writer a longer time has more experience. Um, I was blessed to have Mario, um, and a few other readers, but I don't think you can just whip up a book and throw it out there without, you know, you need to have, um, you need to have readers doing that. I identify as a queer woman. So, um, the having, um, LGBTQ plus, um, characters, um, you know, I didn't have any problem with that. Um, yeah. Um, but as far as going too far, everybody always has the choice to abandon a book. You totally can do it. You can skip over pages. Um, I've seen that. Oh, yeah. I've seen people say, you know, back and forth, um, 
on the, should it have like a warning on it or something. Um, horror in particular. And I've seen that feud on Twitter. I'm sure you have too. Oh yeah. <laughs> and stuff. And, um, maybe, I mean, I don't really have like an opinion on that. Um, one way or another, I do know one of, I think the, the statistics is one in four women in their lifetime have been sexually assaulted. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important for me as a woman when I, when I write that scene to write it in a realistic way, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so often it does turn into this crazy torture porn and I'm sure somebody could say that's happening in my book too, but, but I know, um, I wanted to read something that felt a little bit, you know, write, read and write something that felt more authentic to the experience. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, that one in four women has. Um, and if you're going to be writing female characters at all, again, one in four, you know, how, right. how can you avoid it? Men haven't avoided it. There, There's tons of rape and all sorts of, not even just horror, but, you know, and, um, and often when I read that, I'm like, that's not even very realistic. You know, they almost sexualize it. Not all, right. but, um, but that just, dis- that disturbed me that it was, it, you know, it's, it's this horrendous event and it's being sexualized, you know? Yeah. And so I wanted to stay away from that, but, um, but as far as it being, things that happen to women's bodies. I think women write it best. <laughs> That's just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, writing about something you've experienced is a, it, it literally doesn't matter what the experience is. Like if you have firsthand experience, you've all of those things you can reach for, you know, mm-hmm. your thought process as whatever the experience was, is you, that authenticity is, I think it's kind of just, it's almost impossible to recreate. Like I think maybe writers would hate to hear that. Mm-hmm. Like if you haven't experienced something, it's almost impossible to recreate it in, in writing. Yeah. It's not impossible. Obviously, you know, there are writers out there who can write about things they've never seen or heard or, mm-hmm. or been near and it'll, you won't ever know that they, they didn't, but having the experience, whatever it is, um, and if you if you're a writer, then yeah, you can you can channel that into the words, and it's always going to be different than somebody who hasn't. Yeah, and talking to other horror writers that are are female um, or female identifying, um, a lot of us, um, and I'm sure this is the some somewhat you know similar for men as well, but in particular for women, um, writing horror is actually very therapeutic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very cathartic um, way to be able to express and symbols and and um, detail and setting and different things, uh, things maybe we've gone through, you know, uh, words we were never able to express, you know, feelings of, of things, you know, and mirror it in, in fiction, you know. Um, and be able to kind of work out those things. Um, so, um, I don't pay a therapist. (laughs) I just write (laughs) horror. (laughs) Is that, I don't want to say, see, uh, how do you think you've sat down in the past and been like, I know I need to deal with some shit and I'm going to write a story about it. Um, like somewhat, like it starts out with a feeling, you know, um, I know I attach, ascribe things in my book. There's a lot of, um, devious fathers in there. Um, and you know, my relationship with my father has always been a difficult one. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a way to kind of rectify. Um, he probably, and, you know, no, my father did not turn into an elk man in the woods and chase me down. <laughs> <He did. laughs> um, but the idea of, um, you know, of loss and abandonment, like I would talk about um, writing as more like an overwhelming feeling of abandonment or, you know, as a child, 
my mother was wonderful. My dad wasn't around a lot. Um, you know, and as a child, I made up stories, you know, he was this, he was that, you know, and, and all the reasons of why he wasn't around. And so, um, so taking the feelings, not, not the actual story, but just the feelings and putting mm -hmm. them, um, symbolically writing around, you know, um, a feeling like abandonment and writing around yeah. that. And it wasn't just me, you know, um, lot, lot, lots of kids, um, grow up with absent fathers, you know, how, mm -hmm. how do you, um, you know, it's a wound that you carry. So, um, taking that and being able to, um, articulate it in a story form that has nothing to do with my father. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. Right. He's living his best life on a boat somewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think it's, it's more of like taking an emotion, then doing some research into maybe the area I'm writing about or a particular setting I'm writing about something I saw on a hike, you know, um, a lot of the settings in my books exist because I hike a lot. <laughs> so yeah. I saw a creepy old cave or I saw this, you know, big crystal face that looked like a skull. And I was like, Hmm, what if <laughs> yeah. I have a cannibal, you know, <laughs> that's always a fun way to go about it too, is just seeing something. And I have, there's a car near nearby where I live mm -hmm. and it has been getting progressively more and more like banged up with scratches and, and, corners of it crumpling oh yeah ha and it's happening in like a sort of like kind of rhythmic timeline and by like the fourth or fifth time i saw it i was like oh shit that's the story <laughs> maybe there's like something living in the trunk that well, yeah like creeps seriously out like and... <laughs> the thing that i i kept coming up with like why would this car be getting more and more banged up but still drivable and just seeing something and obviously I feel like your brain has probably been doing the thing my brain has been doing mm -hmm. for most of my life, which is like training me to use that muscle. Yeah. Where it's just like it sees something and then plays with the concept of what all different possibilities there are for it. Mm -hmm. Like um, it's a ton of fun. I think in William Zuni, I talk about like um, William Zuni burying bodies and then he places the the rocks around over it so all yeah. you know so the hiking hippies or whatever <laughs> think it's like some sacred medicine wheel you know <laughs> and stuff and um that just was inspired by seeing big well not, hopefully there's no bodies under there but but seeing um seeing these constructed you know obviously just built you know probably by some yeah who knows some hikers who are just, you know, tripping out and decided to, you know, arrange these rocks and then they'd be gone sometimes when I went back up, you know, it's just like, um, what was going on there? You know, why they put in all that work and now it's all, you know, um, but of course that was before I knew Rangers come through and, oh, and, yeah. you know, bust up all that stuff that, you know, like when people stack rocks and stuff like that, like they don't want you doing that. They'll kick them down and stuff but um just seeing weird things like that and you know you just look at it and then you continue in your hike and then the story is kind of you know starts being born in your brain you know and um, yeah usually a lot of my stories started by just using the notes on my phone as I'm like hiking you know I'm like ah oh, you know I'm gonna write about that medicine wheel I just passed up and you know I'm gonna I'm going to have it be like this almost Dexter like character is going to take care of the bad guys, you know, just in devious yeah. ways, you know? Yeah. Do you also, do you keep a journal? I used to be so good at keeping journals and I'm just not anymore. I was when my yeah. girls were little. Um, I have a file on my computer that's just like stories that maybe I just started and I just get a couple paragraphs in and, you know, I'm like, I set it to boil, I guess, <laughs> yeah. for a month or a year, and then I'll come back to it. Um, I do actually I do a lot of art and music um, 
on the side. And that's kind of where a lot of my other creative processes come in. And sometimes stories, you know, just from things I've been sketching out or whatever. That's awesome. So you illustrate, paint, what kind of stuff do you do? I do really strange abstract paintings. Cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you have any of them anywhere anyone can see or is it all just for you? Um, Mostly, I mean, they're throughout my house. I do put them on places like TikTok and and yeah. um, I'll put it on my um, Instagram and, you know, if I'm working on something. Um, they're usually abstract, almost faceless, weird beings, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, some of them have skull heads. I mean, they're just, it's just weird, weird stuff that I, I draw as weird as I write, I admit it. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you think that comes from in you? Where do you think the, the weirdness comes from? Do you have any idea at all? Oh, I blame my parents totally. Do you? <laughs> um, well, my parents are actually both very creative people. I come from very creative people um, that were very, you know, um, my mom's a wonderful painter. My dad um, does stained glass and glass etching and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I think it was... I honestly think most of my weirdness, though, has just been influenced by what I read, and I I read widely all different kinds of things, but I read some pretty um, bizarre stuff, and yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it came from, I'm sure it came from reading strange and unusual things. I'll blame Dragonlance. Man, that series. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and Elric, the Elric uh, was that. Um, oh yeah, Melna Bonet, <laughs> Michael Moorcock. Did you see their reissuing those and amazing hardcovers? No, but now yeah, I know. Yeah, they literally. The first two volumes just came out. Michael Shaban does the intro to one of them. Oh my gosh! They, you should see the end papers too because they are beautiful. Uh. It's yeah, yeah, definitely look them up. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's the kind of. I grew up in a, my mom was very, very, um, religious. So a lot of my reading was, well, the Bible's scary. It is. It's very scary. Um, and so lots of study of that and then throw in, yeah, some of those other books that I, you know, hide under the bed or under a pillow at the moment and see. Yeah. Um, (laughs) she also strangely watched a lot of Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm sure that influenced as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, even the, <clears throat> the thriller, the thrillers where it's like not anything necessarily quote unquote horrific going on. Mm-hmm. You pick up that suspense and it, I think it does affect you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, let's anything I write, let's up the tension to like right. a billion degrees and um, see what happens to the reader. Then it's like an experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, um, I sort of mentioned on Twitter that I was reading your book slowly mm-hmm. and I had a theory as to why, and I kind of was going to be able to express it a little bit. And then I read a literal quote from one of your stories that put it even <laughs> an even finer point on it. And it was, it was from the stone mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this, the sentence is nothing happens fast in the Valley. Yeah. And that all clicked it clicked for me then that I felt like I was kind of on a hike. Uh, like, like you were saying, yeah. like you go hike, like reading it where I was like, okay, I need to take a break now mm-hmm. and maybe not necessarily like actually go drink water, but that sense of pace. Mm-hmm. Go to go get a protein bar and drink some water. Right. Yeah. Like wipe my forehead. Yeah. At how, how purposeful was that? Was the, I, I love the idea of, pacing not even just you know in a specific story but the entire book because it's a collection Mm -hmm. there's a framing story which i want to get to as well um but how intentional was that like is that something you and mario worked on as as you were doing your thesis is that something that you did with raw dog screaming press afterwards Um, how did that come about it was pretty much um i didn't know what story was coming next um, to be yeah. honest, um, you know, you had to, you had so many pages you had to turn in each month, um, and usually for me that was an entire one of the stories was was done. 
um, and passed on to Mario. Um, as far as the pacing, I also had this idea of time. Um, I find time um, in like a playing with time, I guess, um, is important. It was important to me in this uh, in this book. Um, so almost in a dare I say a postmodern way. Um, <laughs> yeah, where you're kind of weaving in and out and you're getting an opportunity to kind of stare kind of through time. Um, so it wasn't meant to be like jarring so much as like, um, I was thinking like turning of seasons, um, yeah. you know, telling a story of, of the Valley that started, you know, early and then ended up in this strange, unusual, timeless space with Seraphim. Yeah. Um, and then I was, the way I built the book, the idea of its form and everything actually came from um, a humongous obsession of mine with um, John Steinbeck's uh, Pastures of Heaven. Have you ever read that? I have not, no. It's not wildly popular. Um, but it is a gothic novel that he wrote um, that's very unusual. And it's, it, it's all about place. So it starts with a place, the pastures of heaven, but all these stories are revolving through time in this one place. And um, the only connector in it is this uh, man um, who pops up either as a main character or just like, little side character but you know that if when he shows up the luck is run out for whoever's involved in the story like bad things are gonna happen well that's fun um and i just kind of uh studied this it was actually dr king in one of my classes um um brought it up and then um and then we um then we i got into just you know studying the book in its form and how it was written and it did not make him any money. Um, it was one of his earlier ones and he set out to write a Gothic novel and it kind of bombed, but, um, it sounds awesome. Honestly. Yeah. It's one of those, it's a classic that people just don't know that it's a classic, you know? Um, and it's a composite novel. So it's short stories that are all connected. And, um, I just really liked, that idea because it would have been impossible. This thing would have been like a thousand pages long if I had tried to, right. <laughs> you know, um, do it any other way. So it just made sense to, um, to show these slices of time, you know, and connect them by place and setting. That is, um, that comes across. It's, it's fantastic that the Steinbeck novel you're talking about sounds like the graphic novel called here. Have you heard of that? H E R E. Uh-uh. It all takes place in one specific area and you see it. It's a beautiful use of the comic book form because you see slices of all of these different times, like flying by like prehistoric era, the house that gets built there, the kids who grew up there. Mm-hmm. It's by a guy named Richard McGuire. It's, very very awesome i'm writing that down um yeah based on what you just said i think you might dig it It, it's pretty cool um so the the framing story i the i really loved your use of second person Mm -hmm. um and and how that worked on me um you said something at the very beginning of of our of our chat about your grandpa telling you stories Mm -hmm. and that kind of clicked in my head with the, 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 the framing story. Um, cause that comes up a little bit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the police officer is talking about hearing stories from his dad who heard stories from his grandpa. And is that you in the story? Are you talking to, I mean, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a cool way to, to link up with the reader. I love when it, when it works and your book does it beautifully. Thank you. Were you talking like, as you're writing those sections, were you talking to someone specifically or um, disconnected totally? It's just, I mean, yeah, you. somewhat. Um, my grandfather could definitely tell some stories and, and he was my earliest storyteller, um, of Colorado. Yeah. 
you know, um, my grandma too. Um, other parts of it was, um, my honest respect for the various sheriff's departments that operate in the valley and some of the stuff that they have to deal with and see and, you know, patrolling thousands of miles, you know, with say 13 deputies or something. Right. Um, the things they have seen, the things, you know, just like my imaginings of what maybe they wish they could have done more about, but because they lack the, the um, manpower or, you know, the equipment or the ability to even get there, you know, um, in time. If you, you know, get a call at the department, but you have to be almost 100, you know, 50 to 100 miles somewhere else in the valley, you know, things are happening and how how um how frustrating that must be you know um and that would also take a lot of time from your family and different things like that um so i was thinking about that but i was also thinking about i also grew up watching a lot of westerns um yeah. with my grandfather and then of course um you know reading westerns that i borrowed off my grandfather um and then um and then my almost nerd-like study of Cormac McCarthy's um, writing and how he writes characters, um, especially, you know, um, well, I'm going to give it away when I say older men, um, but... Well, I mean, I, I could, I was trying to figure out how to, to ask you, because yeah. I can feel the, the No Country for Old Men influence, mm-hmm. and not in a bad way, like it it's it's absolutely comes across that you are kind of working in that same not area but like it it it's great mm. and that book that was the first McCarthy I read um after I got over his uh him eschewing you know <laughs> punctuation and <laughs> yeah because at first I I felt exhausted like it was hard for me to get into it mm-hmm. but that that book I feel like it's one of those books that I can talk about how it changed me. I really do feel like it did that. Yeah. And it, it did me too. And I was actually, um, I was actually talking to John Bassoff, um, via text, um, about that. Cause I was like, I'm like, I'm one of those nerdy people that went in and, you know, I'm like, Oh, he's talking about the earth here. He's talking about fire here. He's talking about, you know, wind right. here. He's talking about water. I mean, I just totally, um, nerd out over anything he writes, to be honest. Um, I taught the road to my seniors this year, um, which they found very stark and dark. Um, but, <laughs> but that idea, um, and it's a trope, right? Um, the tired deputy or the tired cowboy yeah. who's just seen it all and they're just exhausted and they just, you know, it's like time to retire. Um, he didn't make that up. You know, that's, that's been right. a trope that's been throughout, um, oh gosh, almost every Western I think I've ever read, whether it was Lonesome yeah. Dove or, um, or Long Arm, Long Arm of the Law, if you've ever seen those kind of pulp pulp fictions i forget who writes that but um or like zane gray or any of those guys there's always that tired you know tired guy who's seen it all and um the book did not have those um i'll call it an inset they didn't have those insets it didn't have those uh before um that was actually that came down from mario um mario and um dr um david hicks who is also um an advisor um for this when it was just a thesis and you know and like you need something that connects this you know and yeah and stuff so um admittedly partly um I wrote it and I I had fun writing those but I, it was tedious almost sometimes because I wanted them to directly connect to the stories themselves yeah um because I wanted him to have like a personal tie in to each of the stories so um so going back and doing that like was a pleasure, but it was also tedious sometimes. And then I think I just put it in the second person. Just um, I had been reading too much Italia Cavio, um, who famously did that 
um, in it, um, in Winters and I, what, uh, a traveler. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just love that book so much. And then, yeah. um, and you know, he, he kind of, that's all short stories that go wacky too. And, um, and so, uh, I think I was just honestly being a little rebellious towards the end of thesis writing when I put it in second person, but they loved it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, it works wonderfully. And I'm like, I'll keep that. And I was like, really? I thought you guys would tell me to go turn everything into first person. And they didn't. So, um, <laughs> I lucked out there cause otherwise I would have been probably crying a month before I had to defend, um, changing everything to first person, but it, it, yeah. it worked because I, I think it works because it makes it more, um, like you're get you're climbing into his head literally. Yeah. You know? Um, and it kind of having a little experience with it, like uh, um, more. I don't know. Just puts the reader that much closer to the character, and I find that thrilling. Um, whenever I've seen it done and not a lot of people do it. So, you know, when you find it, it's kind of like a little treat. Um, well, it feels like memories, you know, mm -hmm. like you are going through these memories and that kind of cognitive dissonance of like a memory of a, of a thing that hasn't happened yet, or mm -hmm. that feels really cool. Um, and I, the second person, I, I when it is used well, man, it, it is so much fun mm -hmm. to to see how it affects you as a reader. Yeah. Um, kind of uh, wrapping up. Weirdly, I feel some joy hearing you be like, yeah, it was kind of tedious to write <laughs> those things, just because when you talk to someone who writes and talk about writing a book or putting together a story or something, mm -hmm. those are the moments where I'm like, not everyone would understand that sometimes this feels awful <laughs> and yeah i don't know if that's if it's that way for every writer because you know there are some writers who are like nah you know i sit down the story comes out and it's great i go for a walk yeah that's not me <laughs> me either <laughs> i mean um it's a process and you got to be willing to do those edits and realize that you know i mean when i started this i was I was 25 pages in and I was like, this is great. I had other people yeah. tell me it was great. And then I saw, um, Mario and then Stephen Graham Jones both read one after the other. And I was like, Oh, I got to rewrite all that. And I did. I trashed, <laughs> I don't even have those pages. I trashed them all. And I, I started from scratch because, and that's also it too. You gotta be, you don't, you don't become a writer and think you don't have to read anymore. In fact, if you aren't reading, you're probably a pretty crappy writer. Um, you got to keep on reading and reading widely. Like, you know, I still read the Westerns. I still read YA. I still read, um, you know, the classics and, and stuff. You gotta, you gotta keep on. It's, it's a craft. Um, but it's, it's a, it's something you have to continuously work on. You know, you got to just be willing to do that hard work, you know? And, um, Absolutely. and sometimes oh, I'll slam my computer and I'm just like, Oh, I didn't trash <laughs> right? that whole thing. Um, and sometimes I do. Um, and that's okay too. Cause then you're going to go, you know, come up and do the work again. But yeah, it can be, it can be tedious to do it well. You have to be willing to bleed a little bit, um, yeah. I think, you know. Absolutely. Always got to come back to the keyboard no matter what. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, listeners, Blood Mountain is out from Raw Dog Screaming Press. Make sure you go check it out. Pick it up. It's a great book. You're going you're gonna to love it. You might be horrified, <laughs> but that's the point. So make sure you go grab it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And, um, um, it's been really enjoyable. I could already tell from Twitter that you had already been digging into it. So I was excited to talk to you. That was my conversation with Brenda Tolian. Make sure you swing by Brenda and raw dog That's where you can buy her book, blood mountain. 
please do. If you like horror, even if you don't like horror, maybe you'll dig it. It is pretty dark in places and has some kind of disturbing stuff. So if that's not your cup of tea, maybe steer clear of it. Um, thank you to Brenda. Thank you to everyone at Raw Dog Screaming Press. Um, thank you to Aaron for setting all of this up and, and really helping out. Um, I appreciate everyone who is is making this show possible outside of just me. Obviously, I'm recording it and doing all that stuff, but there's so many people out there who are, are helping me uh, get people on the show, and it is very much appreciated. Thank you to you, the listener. I appreciate it more than these words can even express. I love being able to do this show and get it out there. So if you like it, go to wherever you download it subscribe like it rate it do all those things and and then tell other people about it if you really really want to i think that's one of the best ways for uh, a show like mine to to find people is is just have people who enjoy it tell other people about it um swing by austinrwilson.com i've got free fiction up there free comic books free prose uh, you can download digital copies of Shibboleth, a, a sci-fi zine slash underground, like, occult, paranormal sci-fi thing that I do. Go check that out. Uh, a brand new one is getting ready to come up about Watergate, kind of, but not really. Um, so make sure you check that out. Uh, I'm also on social media, at Austin R. Wilson and at Ledger underscore podcast. Thank you so much. Until next time.